Come see the cast of The Incomparable and many other podcasts at the Now Hear This Festival in Anaheim, California, October 28th through 30th. Go to nowhearthisfest.com. The Incomparable, number 316, September 2016. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We're here for another edition of our book club. We're going to be talking about, a, a, I would say, a, a classic book, or at least a book that is not a current release. It is a book from 1996, which means we are celebrating its 20th anniversary, which kind of is hard to believe. It's a book that I really loved when I read the first time, and I uh, reread it for this podcast. It's The Sparrow, a science fiction novel. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. A science fiction novel by Mary Doria <laughs> Russell. Uh, joining me to talk about The Sparrow are the following. Erica Ensign, hello. Hello. And Shannon Sutterth, hello. Hola, freakies. And Mr. Book Club himself, I guess, <laughs> uh, Scott McNulty. Hello. So The Sparrow, some of us have read it before. I believe Shannon and Scott and I have read it before. But that, yes. Erica, it was new to you. Is that right? I had never even heard of it. Oh, so, Look at you. So it was hmm. that new. Why did you agree to be on this podcast? That's the thing I want to know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, no. And I, I saw I saw your, your Erica's been tweeting and posting in our Slack about the experience of reading this book, uh, to which I guess I would say thank you for showing up <laughs> and for reading to the end. Mm-hmm. Yep. I did it. <laughs> I, I got all the way through. All the way through. Got to the end. Mm-hmm. E- Erica, if you if you abide by the if you have nothing nice to say, say nothing at all. You're gonna be very quiet during this yeah. <laughs> that's true uh i'm not gonna be that quiet <laughs> reading it again i realized all the reasons why i love this book and i also realized and i got to look out for all, in detail all the things that i have a problem with about this book and that was good it was it was enjoyable to revisit it after i don't think i read it in 1996 but i probably read it not too long after a year or two after so it's been almost 20 years since i read this book the sparrow is the first novel by mary doria russell she has written many books since um, she is not really a science fiction writer, although her first two books were science fiction. Um, she's written a whole bunch of other stuff in a bunch of different uh, different genres. She definitely has a, a focus on. She's got a lot of Catholicism happening, and uh, and uh, in, in a lot of her novels. Um, this book is about a uh, a first contact situation, uh, basically uh, the SETI program at the Arecibo uh, Radio Observatory in Puerto Rico picks up radio broadcasts. Very much if you've seen the movie Contact, you get the idea of what's going on here. And then what happens next is that the Jesuits uh, basically buy an asteroid on the cheap and fly it to, this, to Alpha Centauri, where <laughs> they have picked up these signals, in order to make a first contact with the aliens there, and they arrive before anyone else. And our main characters are the members of that crew. The story is told in two different timelines in 2020 or thereabouts 2015 to 2020 when they are headed out they they discover the signal and they're headed out to alpha centauri and in 2060 in the aftermath of the mission when the sole survivor of the mission and we don't really know quite what that means when this starts the the kind of disgraced sole survivor has returned to earth and is being interrogated by the leader of the jesuits 
about this uh, terrible mission that has happened that has almost ruined the society of Jesus. And and so it's a very interesting premise for a novel. And there, yes, there are a lot of aliens and stuff in it too, which is why, despite the fact that some people said, oh, it's not really science fiction at the time. It's because too good to be science had, fiction. Yeah, because yeah, it has literary aspirations. Yeah, science fiction doesn't grapple with large issues of faith and and society and things actually it does it is science fiction and uh, it's got aliens in it to prove it so that's that's the sparrow it is it is at, at its core a story about uh, about uh, Emilio Santos a, a Jesuit priest who is the only survivor and how he got on this mission to go to this uh, this planet and meet these aliens and what happened and uh, what happened when he got back home so that's uh the, that's the sparrow. It's got a lot of interesting issues about about faith, about society, about how we um interpret the 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 meaning of life, about other other people and other beings and there's a whole lot here. So I don't know. Um, maybe we should start with some initial impressions about this book. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on Erica <laughs> because <laughs> she just read it, and I'm gonna Good. start with sort of like um, how this book uh, lived in your memory and uh, and your experience of rereading it. So, Shannon, how about you? Uh, did you you read this a while ago and then reread it for this podcast? Is that right? That is right. Um, I went through a period. In the early oddies of um, trying to make myself read more science fiction and less fantasy, because I'm at heart a fantasy girl. Um, but we were, uh, I was the literary chair for a local con, and our guest was Werner Vinge, and I had never read anything by him, so I made myself read one of his more recent books before um, meeting him and working with him on, on the con. And I decided I really need to fix this and kept going and looking for various things. Um, and the sparrow happened to be one of them. I'm not sure at now. I don't remember exactly what it was, whether it was word of mouth from friends or just seeing it on a shelf, something uh, that made me say, you know, hmm, I wonder what this is like. Um, but in that period of reading sci-fi, this is honestly only one of two pieces, the other one being the Red Mars trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson, that I remember reading and at the time, truly being blown away by, um, because it had this combination of explaining the science in a way that, one, I could understand, but two, did not feel spelled out or dumbed down, and number two, as you said, dealing with these huge philosophical, spiritual forces of nature, you know, all these different things, anthropological things, uh, dealing with them in intricate ways without pulling punches. And three, the thing that struck me most of all was the characters. This this band of people that were pulled together to, uh, to go on this trip uh, just totally grabbed me. Their interactions, their dialogue. Uh, Russell, I think, has, uh, at least in this book, a really strong sense of character and is able to bring them out and make them live off the page in a way I wasn't seeing in other science fiction books, which is, of course, why some people choose to call it not science fiction. But as you said, it totally is. It's classic science fiction. Yeah, I think I think in the intervening 20 years, uh, famous librarian Nancy Pearl has uh, I don't know if she's officially recanted her statements about the, the Sparrow, but she has come out as a proponent of science fiction. And it seems like she's backed off on her original review of the Sparrow, which is that it was too good to be science fiction, which is uh, shameful. But uh, that was 20 years ago and people can grow and change. Scott, what, what's your memory of the Sparrow and uh, and uh, when did you read it and, and what did you think at the time? Well, I 
believe I read it when it first came out, uh, and it, it hit me uh, for a number of reasons. A, I think it's just a fantastic book, but I also was raised Roman Catholic, uh, so it had that layer. And I also yeah. uh, went to a Jesuit high school, so I was very mm. familiar with uh, the Society of Jesus and Jesuits in general. Uh, and in fact, it is the Jesuits uh, who I have to thank for making me an atheist because one of the biggest <laughs> things that they do is they teach you critical thinking. And throughout my four years of high school, I, when I first went to high school, I was pretty sure I was going to become a priest. Uh, and by the time I left high school, I was pretty sure that there was no God. So wow. uh, all right, it, it was my... Thanks, my, Jesuits. Thank you, Jesuits. And it was because of the Jesuits. They taught me critical thinking. Uh, and I was telling this story to one of my coworkers the other day. Uh, and the, she said, well, the Jesuits actually might not be so upset about that because they would be happy that you at least applied critical thinking to the process. Hmm. Uh, and I said, well, I think they still kind of believe in God. That's kind of one of their central tenets. Yeah. So they may not be, <laughs> They'd be somewhat so happy with the, the outcome. But uh, so uh, the stars align in this book because, A, it, the biggest thing it's dealing with is faith, right, and how you're – you, you, how you deal with it, how you, you know, there are many priests in this book and they all have different ways of expressing their faith. Uh, and I enjoy that many of them, you know, you always hear the story of uh, how, you know, uh, God speaks to you and then you, you take up a, a vocation. Uh, and certainly that happens. But the characters in this book uh, basically say, well, I'm not insane. I don't hear voices. I am just my, this. The way I express my faith is through my actions, uh, and that's how I, uh, you know, honor God. I've never actually talked to God, um, but you know, the main character goes through uh, a journey where he kind of, you know, he believes in God, but he's never had uh, an experience with God, and then he kind of he thinks he does right, and it sends him off to this, and then of course at the end. It may not yeah. turn out so well for him, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that that's one of the challenges that the Santos faces is he he feels finally that he's had his moment of understanding of what his purpose is and what God wants him to do, and terrible things happen after that. <laughs> yes, the the thing I didn't remember. I, rem I remember one central terrible thing that happens to him, or, or two actually, but I didn't remember all of the terrible things that happened to him. So yeah. as I was reading it, I was like, goodness gracious, a lot of bad <laughs> things happen to this man and everyone who goes to the planet as uh -huh. well. Uh, and it just also reinforced the idea in that I like novels in which the main characters suffer mm -hmm. for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Okay. Which, Clearly. Which I don't tend to. Like I said, you know, my my memory of the book was that, you know, that it was powerful that it was you know i i grabbed onto it because it was science science fiction yes you know but i could hold up a science fiction book to all my friends and say this is worth reading mm. um but you know like scott i had general generalities of things that had happened um i had um i had somewhat forgotten the dual timelines structure that it was there all the way through and not just like at the beginning and towards the end um, and it took me a while to get back into reading this because as things started developing, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, no. Oh, man, I've got to. But it, when they hit to the point that you described where, um, where um, Jimmy Quinn discovers the music, that there is an actual comprehensible message in what he thought was just some random blip from SETI. 
and things start getting together. Uh, the people start, and all the different characters start interacting. They start, you know, like, essentially, it's like, you know, yeah, let's let's all, you know, band together and build a spaceship. There, it's a bit goofy how they do it, but the enthusiasm <laughs> that got me back into it, which made remembering some of the things that happen along the way even harder. Mm. And I'd forgotten just how powerful those last scenes are when the final um, revelations happen. Let's get, go to Erica. Erica, you're our newbie. You read this for the first time. I don't think you knew what you were getting into. Before we go into some specifics here, I, I would like to hear your overview of your of, of your experience with this book. Well, I did go in completely cold. I off, it, It's so rare that I get to go into a movie or a book or, or anything without knowing anything about it. So I'm always excited when that happens, that I can just go into something completely cold and I think this is one of those times where it complete, it just backfired because had I known what this book was about going in, I would have realized that this is a book that is like in capital letters, not for Erica. <laughs> for, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have a, you know, my... I'm like the opposite of Scott here. My my personal relationship with uh with churchy stuff is 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 complicated in such a way that it very much turns me off anytime that it is in a in in a book. So while I will while I will agree with with all of the non-emotional reactions you guys had to this book. It it is very well written. It is very well crafted. This is a good book. Capital G, capital B, good book. But um it is just so not the kind of thing that I enjoy that I I don't know why I kept pushing through it. If this had been <laughs> if this had been an episode for of like award reading or uh, or even one where we were doing two or three books or something like that, I probably would have just stopped reading and and not finished it. And that now that I have gotten all the way to the end of the book, I I, I think that that would have been better uh-huh. for me. <laughs> I can't argue with any of the, the stuff that you guys have have said about its its quality. It just, uh, yes, it is it is very philosophical, and that is so not my kind of not mm. my kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the keys in that it delves into all these issues of spirituality. And mm-hmm. you know, like like you, Erica, I'm not agnostic's the fairest thing to say as far as, mm-hmm. as my spirituality. But this particular book, at least, not once. Do I, as the reader, feel like I'm being preached at? And I think that is a marvelous, marvelous thing that Russell manages to do to make this book a huge search through spirituality, how people arrive at their spirituality, what happens when their spirituality seems to fail them. And yet I, as a reader, not once felt like I was being told you should believe anything. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I should point out that 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 is absolutely not you know, that's not my complaint. I I agree that, uh-huh. that she did a wonderful job of sort of walking that line of, I mean, you guys mentioned her characters and, and you're right. These are very well realized characters. They all have uh, inner lives to, to one degree or another. So I, I felt like I knew who these people were. So the, the examination of the spirituality is very much carried out from the perspective of each one of these characters. And I did not feel like there was a view that I was supposed to be uh, associating with more than any of the rest. So that was, that was, a very nice thing. Um, it, it didn't make it any more comfortable for me reading it, but mm-hmm. at least I didn't feel like I was being preached to. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things, and forgive me for this, Scott, because I'm going to veer a little bit away from Star Trek here, but um, uh, since we have two hosts of the audio guide to Babylon 5 here, that one of the things I always appreciated about the TV show Babylon 5 was, similarly, the fact that it took religion seriously. And that was a show written by an atheist, but the fact was that he felt like, you know, what, in the future, in a few hundred years, we're going to suddenly not have religion that's been with us for thousands of years? Probably going to be important to humanity for a very, very long time, if not forever for the existence of humanity. So I mentioned that because as somebody who is not a believer in pretty much anything, that's me, I love seeing portrayals of people struggling with their faith and wondering about the nature of God. And in a science fictional context, I, I think it's great because I do think this is one of these fundamental things about being a human being. And that's one of the reasons that I actually really like this book is even as as an, not a particularly religious person, I I recognize the importance of spirituality and a search for meaning in people. And, and these characters are all experiencing it. And they're all experiencing it from different areas, which is fascinating to me. The fact that you've got our main character is a priest who basically has never, kind of never believed in God um, and feels really bad about that which is fascinating to me. And and the idea that he has this moment of clarity and feels that he finally has his meaning and then things go horribly wrong on this planet. I mean, the, 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 the title of the book, The Sparrow, is very specifically from a passage in the Bible about how even when a single sparrow falls dead, God is aware of it. The, the idea here that bad things happen in the world too and God is aware of that too. Well, that... I guess Emilio Santos is the sparrow kind of he uh, terrible things happen to mm-hmm. him. Um uh, so so I, I I I that aspect of it is fascinating to me. Also, I am a sucker for first contact stories and this has that. Mm-hmm. Um it is an you know like we said with the station 11 episode, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> st- bear with me on this one, Scott. Uh, uh, station 11 was a book that a lot of people didn't like because uh, on our book club, because it is not very good as science fiction, uh, showing an apocalypse here. I would say the Sparrow similarly, if you're somebody who go- is going to get caught up in the science of this, you know, there's a lot of hand waving that goes on about how they get to another to another solar system, right? Like they don't describe, oh, we invented a, a a a drive that'll take us there at half the speed of light or whatever. They just kind of she 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 waves her hands at it and it's fine. That's not her strong suit. No, it's not. You know, the anthropology <laughs> side, the anthropology side is her strong suit, and that shines through. You have to squint at the science. You have to and squint it's, at the and, science. And for me, it's yeah. okay because because the culture when they yeah. get to when she when they get to the planet Rakat, it is it is so interesting that it's fine. And it's also my point is, like with um, Station Eleven, you know, the details aren't the point here. It's actually more kind of like the end result. This is allegorical for the presence of the Jesuits in the New World, essentially. This is Mm -hmm. what would be Mm -hmm. a new New World for the Jesuits to to, to have a first contact with. And so it's a it's an alien planet instead. And that's what she's really trying to do here. In fact, I'm kind of impressed that she tries as hard as she does to make it kind of hold together in terms of the science. Right. Because she could have completely just punted and been like, and then they were on the other planet. And instead she tries to go through Arecibo <laughs> and getting the signals and all of that. And and it's, and it's very exciting. And I, I appreciate that because in the end, yes, is it kind of ridiculous that six people who were all together 
in Puerto Rico when the signal was made are part of a nine person or eight person crew that is the first the first people to go to an alien planet where 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 alien life has been discovered for the first time before any governments or space agencies seems kind of ridiculous to me but you know what that's the story she wants to tell and we kind of go with it and I kind I I mean I didn't it is ridiculous but I did also kind of buy into it a little bit because the the church doesn't have uh the you know the rules and regulations that I would imagine the governments would have to follow, so they could exactly. basically say, "Okay, let's buy an asteroid and uh, let's go," <laughs> and that's what they do. And you know, he he convinces them uh, that we we should do this. We have you know priceless artwork that we can sell on the down low uh, and get us uh, a sweet asteroid, uh, and we can uh, go off and you know we happen to have the people we need to make this a reality. Add a couple more priests, and uh, off you go. <laughs> Add a couple priests, instant to... Just add Jesuits. Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the spirituality aspect of it is is the biggest thing that turned me off about it. But I think even if somehow this book were able to exist without that, which certainly no. I don't think is possible, but even if it had, I still don't think that it would have been something that truly appealed to me because unlike Scott, once again, I am not a person who really digs it when the, the main characters in books suffer a lot. Like, I don't mind some of it because, you know, sometimes you need that for a good story. But I, I mean... I, there is there's so few hours in the day that I get to read that I tend to like my escapism to be a little bit more escapey and and have something a little a little bit lighter to uh to deal with and also the Amen. the sort of back and forth flipping um yeah. is is a thing that sometimes I like and sometimes I don't and in this case it, it you find out at the very 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 beginning that everything goes horribly wrong and it's just it's a journey of discovery to find out how things went wrong so that just had me kind of you know clenched heart all the way through like what is Mm -hmm. going to happen I know something is going to be awful and I like I would I would rather know at the outset that it's going to end very badly than have it seem like everything's going to be fine and then it ends terribly Um, so I guess this is this is a little bit better than that but but still I just spent the whole thing with with a, a feeling of great dread. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that I managed to sort of lose that dread somewhat once the um the 2019 once the current day quote unquote uh timeline started kicking together. Uh I I was kind of surprised that the I, the, the characters, you know, were strong enough and having so much fun with each other that it, that drew me back in um just like it did the first time. I mean, you know, I, I've read when I read this book the first time, like you said, it tells you right at the beginning, things really went downhill. And yet the first time around, I managed to forget a lot of that until the last third of the book when it started really going downhill and gathering speed. Um, And it almost happened to me again. (laughs) Yeah, see, whereas I was just I felt like it was such work reading this book Mm. that I got toward the end. And, you know, the, the, some things had happened, some things hadn't happened yet. And I was just finding myself going, OK, I've actually, you know, I've, I've learned to maybe not like so much, but at least appreciate some of these characters because they were very well written. But I literally found myself thinking, oh, my God, just die already. <laughs> like, about, like three of these people. It's like, I like you, but I know something bad's going to happen to you. So can we please just get it over with? Let's just get it over with. And I did. I think the structure, uh, to your point, Erica, makes it all the more worse because, you know, at the beginning – uh, the, you first meet uh, Sandoz and he's a broken character and then you flip back to the past and he's like this bubbly guy that everybody likes and he's making jokes and he's helping everybody uh, and you just think, oh, now I'm just going to watch this person 
basically have the worst several years of his life uh, and then come back and continue the downward trend. So it's not not going to be a great pleasure ride. Mm -hmm. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by Casper, a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to consumers like me. I sleep on one of these. It eliminates commission-driven and inflated prices. It's an award-winning sleep surface that was developed in-house. It has a sleek design, and it's delivered in a small box, so small that you will say, how did they do that? The answer is vacuum technology, I think, something like that. It involves sucking all the air out, and it fits in a box. And then you open it, and whoosh, it expands back to its normal size. In addition to that, that mattress, though, that Casper's famous for, they also offer an adaptive pillow, which I have as well, and soft, breathable sheets. I've got those, too. Boy, yeah, it's all good stuff. It really is. An in-house team of engineers at Casper spend thousands of hours developing the mattress. It's got springy latex and supportive memory foams, creating a sleep surface that's got just the right sink, just the right bounce. And it's a breathable design, so it sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. Mattresses often cost a lot of money, well over $1,500. Casper mattresses start at $500 for a twin, $750 for full, $850 queen, up to $950 for a king. Buying a Casper mattress, completely risk-free. If you've thought to yourself, well, these Casper mattresses sound good, but you know what? I don't want to buy a mattress on the internet. That would be crazy. Don't worry about it. Casper has free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. Sleep on it for three months. And if you decide at any point you don't like it, let Casper know. They will take it away and give you your money back. It is that simple. So, an obsessively engineered mattress, a shockingly fair price, a great feel, free shipping, and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Try it for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, they will take it away, and you have lost nothing. Made in America, it is Casper. It is a great sleep surface. Try it out now. You'll get $50 toward any mattress purchase if you go to casper.com slash Snell and use offer code Snell. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to Casper for sponsoring The Incomparable. So I'm going to um, free everybody here. I mean, you shouldn't be listening if you haven't read the book. But if you ha- are still listening, we're going to fire off a, a, a sort of a, a friendly spoiler horn right here <laughs> just to make it clear before we go even deeper down in uh, to uh, the Sparrow. And if you like what you've heard from me and Shannon and Scott, maybe you should read it. And if you like what you heard from Erica, uh, don't, don't read it. it. Here's the spoiler <laughs> oh, It's beautiful music. I feel like... Uh, in some of these episodes, the spoiler horn is implied for the whole thing because why? But yes, I feel like we haven't like dug down into some of the worst of it, which I'm going to do right now because I, I mean, when we talk about <laughs> the two time oh, frames, right? Um, I, I think it's interesting that that uh, you could argue that this is trying to cushion the blow a little bit, but of course, I think also it's the structure is that she kind of wants the descent into into darkness and the kind of like an ascent mm-hmm. into finding a reason to live happen in parallel. Right. I mean, I think that's what she's trying to do here. It does give you the, the sense from the beginning when you're watching all these people who are very excited about this first contact situation and going to this planet, um, you already know that something horrible is going to happen. And so that colors your judgment of it, which it's, it's an interesting choice. Um, I gotta say, from the perspective of 20 years later, one of the things about this book that did not impress me at all is one of the conceits here is that Sandoz is returned by the second, uh, the second mission to Rakat. He is, he is found in a dungeon 
this is what happens. He's found in a dungeon as mm-hmm. the sex slave of an alien. And they and all of his other and and he's seen killing an alien as they find him and uh, then they put him on his asteroid ship and send him back to Earth and radio back so it reaches them much before the the ship does about this terrible you know state that they found him in and from the perspective of 2016 reading this I could not buy for a moment that. Yep. The discovery of him, everybody refers to him in the in the present timeline when he's this disgraced and disfigured because he's had this horrible operation done on his hands by these aliens as a prostitute. And they everybody just assumes like, mm-hmm. okay, first off, let's let's break this down. First off, that he was a prostitute when they find him in a sex dungeon being uh, you know, for for these aliens. Literally naked and bloody. Yeah, nobody thinks one, mm-hmm. nobody thinks that perhaps another possibility was that he was forced into this. And two, when they call him a prostitute, they assume it means that he was a willing and joyous prostitute, which is also, I think, not something that you should assume. Mm -hmm. And so in reading this this time, I was like, I, I didn't I didn't buy that whole part of it. It makes everybody on Earth essentially in the in the in the later time frame seem kind of like a dummy that because she wants this revelatory moment when he says, no, I wasn't doing that because I enjoyed being raped by aliens. It was rape. And, and, and they're like, what? It was rape. I had no idea. It's like, yeah, uh, you should have picked that up. Like when they radioed it back, you should have figured that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, that was that was my other big problem, which I didn't know if we were in spoiler horn territory, so I couldn't say it. That made me actually angry yeah. at this book because mm-hmm. it just I mean, really, the where we start out is in the, the 2060 sort of present day. And the whole framework of this book is based on the the slow kind of un unveiling of what this character has gone through and and why he's he's so shamed and 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 this is it i mean it just it nerfed the rest of the book (laughs) for me to a really large degree yeah and i didn't feel that way 20 years ago but i'm i'm more aware of stuff like that now where i and and knowing what happens in the book and now i'm judging it on the reread based on what i already know is going to happen i thought it's completely impossible to me that nobody would think that at any point I mean, yeah, I grant that there was a radio report from some people who had a skewed view of it. And then he's silent because he's just kind of like coming back and he's completely comatose, essentially. And he won't talk to people. So they don't know his part that nobody in the 20 intervening years has not considered as a serious (laughs) possibility that he is the victim of a horrible crime. And yet uh, I think because Russell wants us to have that revelatory moment. And I was thinking as I was reading, like, you know, the way to tell this story is probably to have him just be found in prison and have them not understand just how awful his conditions were. And then at the end of the book, him have him realize, no, actually they kept me for the, those last 10 months that I was on that planet as a sex slave and raped me repeatedly and have everybody be horrified when he admits that this is part, this terrible thing that happened to him. But instead everybody knows and they assume it's his fault and they're and they're blaming the victim because he was wearing he was wearing a jeweled collar, don't you know? Well, and part of it is that um, I think, and this is uh, Russell doing some criticism, possibly of um, how quick human how quick it is in human nature is to look for the scapegoat. We don't get sure. a huge amount of detail, but um, the fact that um, the the Jesuits, you know, since this was a private enterprise, essentially just sort of you know snuck 
you know, their team off and into the asteroid before the United Nations or anybody else was even aware that somebody was actually going to try the, the um, try to contact this planet. Uh, a lot of people, it was public that the contact had been made, but um, but no nobody official, no government tried to do anything about it as quickly as the Jesuits did. Um, and then for it to go so completely <laughs> pear-shaped. And they buried all the transmissions, right? So it, it, it nobody knows. It's been a media right. blackout. Mm-hmm. The scandal as a result, when the UN, commi- when the UN representatives um, as part of the second uh, group get there, you know, they yes, they jump to the wrong wrong conclusion extremely stupidly. Yeah. Um, but they are also looking at uh, the entire rest of the crew is dead, and um, the planet that they came to visit, which apparently when they arrived was in this nice peaceful planet and everything's hunky dory, um, is now going through uh, a civil war. You know, then the, and the UN is, you know, looking, they're all looking for somebody to blame. And at the moment, Sandoz is the only one to blame. So they've got this tunnel vision and jump and like jumping to conclusions. I agree. If this book were written today, I don't think Russell would have um, had every single character more or less believing the original story. Somebody would have questioned. Uh, but this was 1996 and um, gender issues and so forth have advanced since then. Also, and in the book's defense, and yes, I did just say that, uh, I, I do think that it took so long for him in Earth time for him to travel back. And the only information that they had, you know, why wouldn't they trust the word of these UN advisor people? Mm-hmm. Because they probably didn't give super great details about the fact that he was naked and, and dirty and bloody and, you know, non-responsive physically after they after they release him. Yeah, the first thing they saw him do when they go into that cell, uh, the uh, alien girl who, as a very young child, um, Sandoz had managed to make first contact with her. His talent is linguistics, and he's able to soak in and cre- and figure out languages very quickly. Um, so the idea that this was a an alien that knew who he was, and it sounded like that they were supposed to be um, at least friendly... But um, Sandoz attacks the second the cell is opened. Uh, we learn that he's sort of psyched himself up into, I'm going to end this one way or the other. I'm getting out or I'm dying. And it's just horrible bad luck that the first person through the door is this young alien girl. And the first thing those UN people see is him uh, run into her, smack her so hard into the wall that um, she breaks her skull or her rib cage and kills yeah. her. Right. So and there, so- there's that. So so the the thing is that these guys have basically grown up lived most of their lives knowing they think uh what the deal is with this guy. So mm-hmm. I mean it's it is a pretty ingrained uh, idea of of what had happened to him. So I mean yeah. I, I still don't completely buy it but at least at least you know they they had an awful long time to have believed this thing so that that meeting this weird guy is probably not going to completely jar that out of their minds. Yeah, I um, yeah, I I just feel like from the perspective of twenty years later, I'm like, oh, it's it could have been tweaked a little bit and been much more kind of believable mm-hmm. to me than than it actually is. Let's see. I mean, we should let's talk about the. There's so much here. Um, uh, the characters mm-hmm. are really interesting. Um, we 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 meet uh we meet uh, uh, another uh, another Jesuit 
uh, who is uh, who we we find out right before he dies. It's very much a I'm going to download all my final information before I die. Who is his mentor? That he's actually a gay priest, um, mm-hmm. and because and I and I think one, honestly one of the reasons that uh, the 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 rape is part of the story of Sandos is because um, she wants to us to think about and we we do for the whole um, book think about vows of celibacy here because of course Sandos falls in right. love and basically pushes uh the woman he falls in love with away because he has you know he he's now kind of high on his final you know his sudden contact with what he believes is his his destiny guided by god um so that that's part of the theme there but that's an interesting character he's a texan um we've got the the uh uh it, it's a a jewish uh artificial artificial intelligence expert who makes her living she's a vulture she makes her living basically scripting people's brains uh like into <laughs> computer codes so that they can be their jobs can be eliminated um but he falls in love with her and i thought it was interesting that her character is uh Oh well, not owned, but uh, yeah, she's an indentured yeah. servant, right? For most mm-hmm, of the book, mm-hmm. in this uh, guy who uh, pays deals and basically pe- people futures, right? He pays for he identifies uh, talented poor children and puts them through school, and you know identifies their their talent, and then they basically have to work off all of the money he's invested in them, so that he, he contracts them out, and uh, she is one of those people, and I just thought that was. Something that did not seem that far fetched to actually happening nowadays, mm-hmm. uh, which made me depressed. Yeah, that was a, a bit. So the whole Sofia Mendez story is like a little like other science fiction novel that she could have written because that 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 the idea there also you know she's extrapolating twenty years ahead in her future. Um, there is a it's actually not too far off of what has happened in Syria happens in this book in Turkey. Where there are right. uh, t- there are terrorists and a war and a civil war, and you end up with she is basically her parents are killed, and she is she is sold off into prostitution first, and then becomes an indentured uh, slave and a highly educated professional at that point. But she still got the fact that she wears this like bracelet that is her symbol of being owned until she can pay off her debt and it's a it's a whole interesting idea that is kind of just tossed off as a a side aspect of this plot but uh, another thing that felt like a whole mm-hmm. very interesting science fictional premise what about the uh, i mean the, anybody have any other characters that they want to talk about i mean we we get we get jimmy quinn who is your stock uh uh he's just a big uh, science nerd who discovers aliens you know as you do Big, literally, and like seven crush. feet. Seven, yeah, he's the seven, seven, seven and a half footer. Um, yes. I like all the aliens think uh, so clearly he's your mother and you sh- he should be carrying <laughs> yeah, you around. Yeah, because he's so tall. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that later. But yeah, the fact that they're, they're judging each other's races, the humans and the, the Runa is the first right. um, group of aliens they meet on this planet. And they're judging gender by size. And they figure out much later just how scrambled everything has gotten that apparently, you know, Emilio's studies in the language, um, he made the same assumptions as far as which gender is being declined um, with which noun uh, and finding out that, yes, they all assumed that big seven foot tall Jimmy was the mom because he was the biggest. (laughs) You know, if it had been just 
just size that was the gender thing i would have i would have found it amusing and interesting but no this is another this is another sign that this book was written 20 years ago because mm-hmm. it was and the anthropologist also makes note of the fact that it wasn't just the size but it was also the um Role sort of model. the duties that, that true, they have true. and and you know who was taking care of the children's and and being sort of more maternal and that sort of thing and i was and just who like, is going wow. out and doing business in the bigger world yeah that's mm-hmm. true yeah, but isn't that flipped yeah. with aruna um, isn't that wasn't that the the point there yes. is that everybody's making gender gender yes. assumptions and it's the opposite right but she was she was just saying that that humans still uh, have the same gender assumptions which is the thing that was problematic for me at this at this point I see it's 2020 yeah, now that's... come on i did i did laugh at the the point where the book <laughs> is taking place in what is now our present day and that was uh, although although she <laughs> did get tablets right she, yes. the, the people are using tablets a lot and yes. i was like all right that's pretty good yep that's a pretty good job yeah. And Jimmy, uh, Jimmy's uh, home computer gets hacked into by some punk teenagers. Yeah. I thought, yep, sounds, that sounds yes. right to me. <laughs> sounds about right. Also yeah. There's some, there's some some paper yeah. at one point that I was like, nope, that's probably not right. But uh, I thought she did she did uh, okay okay yeah. with that. Uh, as far as characters, I love the Edwardses. Oh yeah, I love the it's this it's a couple mm-hmm. that you know you would not automatically assume to be the type of people to go on this mission. They are in their 60s. Um, They essentially have retired and are doing volunteer slash mission work in Puerto Rico. Um, They're a hoot and a half, um, just the the way the conversations between them, that they quit back and forth and with their friends is delightful. But these are not your standard... um, hero's journey go off and quest kinds of people which i think is great i think yeah that was one of the things i liked the best i think Anne the most because you get to see Mm -hmm. a lot of her inner life as compared with george most of his inner life is is shown through Anne. Um, true but i just i i i liked her as a character i liked the way that she reacted to other people and the things she was thinking and i just you're right the the hoot and a half thing i wanted them to be my friends i Mm. want to i wanted to go to their house and hang out when they were having these parties because she just Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, she sounded like the greatest host in the world Mm -hmm. yeah it's a it's a a fun you know these characters meet sandos earlier on and then he basically says you should come to puerto rico and they're like yeah let's do it and they're they're a lot of fun Mm -hmm. and this that's one of the things about this that um about this like let's let's buy an asteroid and not tell anybody that i kind of like is that you know when else are you going to see a story about a bunch of friends deciding that they're going to be the ones to send a spaceship for a first contact with aliens it's like that is not going to happen right and yet that is the premise of this story (laughs) including the retired husband and wife who are the last people that you would normally expect to see in a first contact space mission but they go um and of course which is where you really need you really need the god aspect of it there because that does actually make it work without feeling hand wavy because you can just be like oh you know God's yeah right well, right although mm. what's interesting about the 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 couple is that uh, the the wife who's the doctor is um is a basically completely lapsed Catholic and although she potentially changes her tune when they get to the alien planet um you know she's she's 
among a lot of people who are believers, she is not one. And it's a very interesting kind of kind of combination that they have there. It's a good, yeah, those are really good characters. The dialogue is really good with those characters. I felt like a lot of these characters really jump off the page. Not only Sandoz, but the the couple mm-hmm. uh, and, and Sofia Mendez and uh, the, the Texan uh, priest, too, who is his uh, mentor. These are all characters mm-hmm. that, this is mm-hmm. one of those books where I can actually, like, I, I start to cast people and stage scenes and right. hear their voices <laughs> talking because the characters are so strong and um, and memorable. Uh, let's talk about aliens. How about that? Mm-hmm. No. Okay, Scott, you can stay quiet. <laughs> so, uh, we get to, we get to Rakat. They, 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 they take a hollowed out sort of mining asteroid and they, through magical, undescribed, uh, engines. AI program. Physically. Just right. physics, you guys. Yeah, they, they accelerate and how they do that, we don't know. And then they decelerate and then they get to Rakat and, uh, you know, it, it, it's fine. And, uh, and they meet and and I really like like I said, I'm a sucker for first contact stuff. I really like first off, they land kind of like far away from everything, and they're just sort of like basking in the uh you know in the in being off of the asteroid for one and in this new ecosystem of all alien stuff that they don't know anything about, and they have to like eat little bits of food to see if they're gonna it's poisonous or not, which I kind of enjoyed and all of that. And and they do all of that, um, and somebody dies actually, which like, and they don't know why. Which I also really kind of liked that this is when you're getting to the Jesuits coming to the new world, right? Which is they're they're far from home. Mm-hmm. They they they're not going to just subsist on their rations. They are trying to figure this out. Some of the people aren't going to make it, and and there's not going to be a clear reason why. Um, and then they finally meet the. Uh, the aliens on this planet, or at least they think of the aliens on this planet, which are the Runa, um, and they and they have this question of like they they get some stuff confused, but because Sandoz is there because he's a brilliant translator, and they they spend some time trying to figure out who these people are and 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 uh, how their culture works, and I loved all of this stuff, and it goes. I was I was happy. I was afraid that this was going to go on for like one chapter and then be done, and. And my memory of it is so uh, warm that I wanted to go on longer. And in the book, actually, it goes on a very long time that there that that this whole portion is. But I really enjoyed the whole first contact with the, with the Runa. I I enjoyed that as well. But I did think there's they they spend like a year in this little village and they never like fa- ask about the city right. and try and get more information. I found mm-hmm. that odd. Uh, but but I did like I enjoyed reading about it. But I was like, if I was there, I might you know, go check out the city or something. I don't know. It seems very tempting, but maybe they're so overwhelmed with the, the novelty. Like everything is new on this alien planet, obviously. So they're writing scholarly papers about the, you know, they're taking it slow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think part of it is being cautious. And I, I'm under the impression that at least among themselves, some of the characters are saying, you know, we really need to, you know, try and, you know, try and find the people who are the singers because the whole reason they've come to this planet is the music that the SETI picked up and this particular population they don't music no they, they don't do it um but i can yeah i think maybe it does stretch on a little bit farther than it could that it might need to but you know there's always seems to be something else to do something else to take care of um before trying to go on to the next thing yeah i have i'm, I'm of two minds about this because on the one hand like i mean it, it from a logical perspective, it does make sense to to sort of take your time and and do it methodically. Except these are people that immediately decided to jump in an asteroid and go to another planet. So I I don't feel like that 
that argument... They're not great with impulse control. (laughs) Yeah, that argument doesn't quite work. However, on the other side, the reason that they were able to jump into an asteroid so quickly is because they're Jesuits and it was God's Mm. plan. You know, they this everything seemed to... And they didn't talk in detail about all of the stuff that had to miraculously happen in order for it to fall into place. But, you know, from Anne's musings, they make it very clear that, that everything sort of came together perfectly at the last minute in a way that did seem like it was miraculous. So it made it very easy for the the higher ups and the and the Jesuits to to say yes, you know this is this is meant to be, and I, I believe that there were a couple of nods to that in that like you know Jimmy really did want to get out there and go yeah. to the city, uh, but for one reason or another, it seemed like they should stay there. You know the whole God's plan again. Emilio was leaning that way, right? And also, um, Russell does take care the the first member of the crew to die of what appears to be natural causes. They try, you know, the and the doctor tries to do an autopsy in what's essentially field conditions and can't figure it out. Um, that was the music expert, right? So, like the mm-hmm. biggest driving force mm-hmm. in the party is removed very early on. Yep. Yeah. The other thing that's brilliant. That's like I said. This is. Uh, it makes it so clear that uh, Russell's strength is anthropology because she throws in the gender mix-up at the beginning. And, you know, it it turns out to be fairly harmless. They just have to reassess what they had assumed and rework some of their papers. But, you know, to make such a monumental misunderstanding of um, of the gender of these pe- of the of the runa um, and then take something as simple as. You know, we really need to grow our own food. Um, you know, we yes, we can eat a lot of the stuff on this planet, but, you know, it would help if we had our own. And, you know, just something simple as, you know, plant a garden in this village and, and start eating the stuff there turns out to have catastrophic effects on the biosphere because we learn that um, there's a second alien race that essentially um you have a predator and prey situation that has evolved into this entire society yeah. of the ja- the Jarafa Janaata um yeah this, so this is what i want what, Janata, what, yeah what the Janaata uh, one of the things that's interesting here is is yes Shannon um this they, the innocence of we need to grow a garden is the thing that essentially mm-hmm. destroys this planet at least as it was before they mm-hmm. got there, which is is a an amazing kind of moment where it unravels gradually and they realize what's going on. So you mentioned it. We should say it. So there, it turns out that this is a planet with two races. And the reason that the Runa seem kind of docile is that they have evolved from prey animals. And there's another species that has invo- evolved as their predators. And they look similar because that was the hunting method used by the historical predators. But the Janaata have three claws instead of sort of five uh, very dexterous fingers. Um, and when we meet one of them, and it almost kills Sandoz when we do, uh, we discovered that this planet is far more complicated than they had really anticipated. And I like I like mm-hmm. when they're like with the, with the Runa, because I, I feel like, um yeah they're 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 so overwhelmed with meeting these people that they they want to kind of take it slow and i can i can buy that but that that moment when they meet the john Ada is that revelatory moment of like oh this is much more alien than we really expected and 
we we finally will go to the city with them. It turns out that um, again, Russell used uh, the the traditional kind of predator prey population balance, which is something that's like three or four percent. Mm-hmm. Of the population of this planet right. is mm-hmm. the Jana'ata because that's generally the percentage of of uh, uh, the ratio between predators and prey, and and when you put it when you layer that on sentient creatures, and this was a, a moment that I really liked, you realize that what you've constructed is a ruling class, a very small ruling class, and a very large, mm-hmm. essentially slave or serf class, and that's actually the culture of Rakat. And, and not just um, slave class, but they're still prey. They still feed stuff. You know, to us, it's can- yes. to us it feels like cannibalism because you've got two sentient, you know, races, and one of them is eating the other. Um, but yeah, we we finally learned that that's um, one of the reasons that the population control is so rigid. The Runa, the Runa are not allowed to breed. Um, unless they earn it by gathering, uh, apparently perfume scent is massively um, a massive part of this culture, and uh, the Runa gather the flowers right. and the plants needed to create these perfumes and create these scents. And if they do a good enough job, hey, they get the right to have a generation right. of kids that, that are that are um, bred with by, chosen by right. Jana Atta because they are also yes. breeding them like humans would breed dogs. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And the Jana'ata themselves are also under population control because they can't have too many right. of them because they need to keep the balance of the prey and the the predator. And so when when she introduces uh Supari, Supari right? Is that how yes. you he's a third. <laughs> yeah, he's a third. So we meet him before he meets uh the humans and so we get we find out he's a third. He can't have he can't start his own family. He really wants to. He's really good at you know, finding trends and, you know, cashing in on it. So he's supremely wealthy, but <laughs> he's he a cool finder. <laughs> he is a cool, he is a, he's a trend <laughs> spotter. Uh-huh. Uh, so he's super wealthy. He's very uh, successful, but he doesn't get any respect and he really wants to start his own family. And the only way you can do that is if you get, uh, what is, what is the, the, the head guy's name? Reshtar, I, I think. Oh yeah. The yes, Reshtar. Yeah. That's his, his title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. have to, you know, impress him or do something worthy of being able to found your own family. And so we know that's his motive. And so when he meets the humans, we know, oh boy, this is not going to turn out well. But they don't know that, obviously. And spoiler alert, it doesn't, it doesn't turn no, out I mean, well. he, he does, he uses them for his own... And Sapari takes his time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He uses he uses them, but in, in the beginning, using them is not uh, particularly terrible. But there comes a moment where he basically has to sell them out and does. And without, you know, a moment's hesitation. Without yeah. any compulsion. Yeah, because he's like, whatever. Yeah. yeah, I got what I wanted. I yeah. got what I wanted. <laughs> well, I mean, at that point, he had, made, <laughs> he had made what, it, what seems like an actual emotional connection with Anne. With Anne but mm-hmm. she dies much earlier on. And by the time that Supari really actually sells them out, uh, the only person left at that point is Emilio, whom he didn't really yeah, care for to start with. So I don't feel like I don't feel like he's necessarily, you know, throwing over some convictions that he had. Because right, if Anne yeah. would have still been alive, it might have been a different story. Very true. That's true. Well, in fact, Sapari, you could argue is is um he, the thing that the knock that he's got with the other Jana'ata is that he's so much 
he he gets along so well with Aruna. And if you think if you think about that in a human context, right, he is a member of a ruling class whose greatest skill is dealing with the subjugated class. And that is not good, right? Even if it makes him a good businessman, it means he he is going to never be able to access high society because of that. Because he's his his all of his skills are in dealing with the lower class of of people, in this case, the Runa. And so when he meets Anne and really, really kind of bonds with her. I believe that bond because I feel like that's what he's good at is meeting with other kinds of people. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like the anthropologist of the Jana Atta. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the only way he's going to be able to further his line is to be appointed as the head of a new family, which means he's got his success thing in the background and, and, you know, and dies um, off screen green which i have a problem with um and yeah. and in the end he just goes another direction but i think that's a really interesting character because although he portrays them at the end um i think i i like that character because he's kind of portrayed as being an outcast from the Janaata. he's more like us than the rest of them are which i think is one of the problems with them underestimating the Janaata as a as a people is that sapari right. is the wrong right, yeah. model for mm. what they are because he's the weird he's a weirdo <laughs> oh, definitely he's a weird he's gone native <laughs> essentially with the with, with aruna <laughs> and it is and now with the humans and you know do not think that the rest of the people are like him because they are really not like him yes there their encounters with the rest of Janaata aren't the 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 free range Janaata and the city Janaata are not good. <laughs> no, right? No, right? right they're because the, they're the roving bands who are still sort of just acting as predators. Right. I, I feel like it's outland. like poachers. one like they're lone poachers. hunters and they just go and and poach. Uh, and sadly, they poach some humans. They do. So let me let me. So one of the, I remember twenty years ago ish when I read this book that I did it, my biggest complaint about it is that I felt like, and I'm going to describe it the way that I described it back then, which is I felt like at some point she realized she needed to finish the book. And what and what was a meandering, leisurely walk through dialogue and, and digressions and descriptions rapidly becomes a plot output to get to the end. Yeah, I buy that. And so this time, this time I watched for it. And the fact is, Every chapter alternates between the two timelines until the last two chapters. And the last two mm-hmm. chapters are both in the present day, the later timeline, and they describe everything that happened on the planet in very short terms uh, 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 in a completely different style than the rest of the book. And it still frustrates me. Um, I was wondering if I would be proven wrong in rereading it, and instead I was kind of vindicated. It's like, I do you're, feel... You're proven right. I do feel like yeah. she, she ran out of time or ran out of, uh, of energy and she wanted to finish. But I also... I, I don't know whether this is true or not, but I also feel like maybe she was a little cowardly about her killing her characters because we don't see uh, Anne and DW get killed on screen. And we don't see the massacre that is the final destruction of this <laughs> of the mission. Rest of the, team. the whole thing that they've been leading up to, where everything goes wrong, it's this incredibly dramatic thing. And it is told in this perfunctory flashback fashion where we never really get to see it at anything like the level of everything else we've seen up to that point and it's really frustrating it's made a little more frustrating by the fact that in the sequel to this book which i also read 
20 or 15, 15 years ago and was disappointing, I have to say. Um, it yeah. turns out that perhaps one of the reasons that she did this is because she was cheating and she wanted to lie about exactly who died in that massacre, which is also frustrating. But anyway, my, my point is, my point is, though, that y- you can't. It seems to me as as a reader and maybe even as an editor, you can't be going like 20 miles an hour, taking in all the sights, and then when you get to the key point in the book, floor it. And that's what happens at the end of this book. I agree because I was I've been uh, my school is starting again. So, you know, I've been busy and rushed and trying to read as best I could. Um, And here I was. I still had like 60 pages of the book left to go. Uh, at nine o'clock this evening and we started recording at 1030 my time and I'm thinking like I don't know that I'll finish but I'm gonna try um yeah I was able to get through 60 pages in like 45 minutes because it is so much boom 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 report 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 yeah 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 it's not it's not your imagination I can I can uh, come up with a reason I don't know if it's a good reason or uh not but I'll, I'll try to explain it so I think it, it could mirror one could argue uh sando's journey uh at, in the beginning of the book he's reticent he doesn't want to talk about anything he's thinking about remembering the good times on the planet right and then as we're getting through there's that revelatory moment where they figure out oh you weren't a prostitute you were being gang raped uh and he you know he admits it and it wasn't his fault he finally kind of says you know okay it wasn't my fault mm-hmm. there wasn't anything i could do i was raped uh, and then you kind of, there's that, that that's a pivotal moment for him, and he suddenly just starts talking about what happens and reveals all these details, and that's the last sixty pages of the book. Now I don't know if that's a good reason, but that if I had to write a paper explaining the structure of the book, that is sure. what I would write about. Yes, I think I that's not that. bad, not bad head canon, Scott, but. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of great stuff in that that village. I particularly like where they start farming because uh, they need to to you know grow their own food, and the Runa obviously pay attention. Although you know at this point we don't think that the Runa are all that right. bright, uh, but it just turns out mm-hmm. that they are they are as bright as uh, regular people. They just have you know they they're aliens, so they do things differently. Uh, and then they notice the the farming, and so they're like gee, why do we keep trudging so far away to get our food when we can grow some food here? And they start doing it. And then, of course, that leads to horrible things, uh, as Shannon pointed out, horrible (laughs) things and civil war. And (laughs) what they have done is also this incredible, to put it in Star Trek terms, violation of the prime directive, where the Mm. presence, it turns out, Mm. as careful as they sort of were being, they ruin this society because they the 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 runa begin to plant gardens and then they have an overpopulation and that means the Janaata send out squads to kill them and there is a moment where one of the humans says there are more of 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 us than there are of you uh, yes. and that's like oh no because the entire <laughs> power power structure is based on the fact that uh these predators have the have put the fear in the prey yes. and and the runa start chanting that right when the, the Janaata mm-hmm. squad is there and the Janaata kind of freak out and just said okay we're gonna kill you all <laughs> and there's the first massacre yeah mm-hmm. yeah it starts the civil which war which is it's powerful right because it is that moment of like this is actually being held in balance by this consensual hallucination that the predators and the prey who have evolved together and their society has evolved together are in these roles and these people from another planet come in and say, hey, you realize there's way more of you than them. You could take them. And it's like, oh, <laughs> well, 
yeah okay that's it forget it like they totally screw up this society and i really appreciated Thanks, that Kirk. there could have been more of that too i i feel like if she had taken those last two chapters and just let them go at the pace of the rest of the book it would have been a perfect book for my uh taste but instead uh it's sort of like somebody was giving her the wrap-up sign maybe her agent maybe her publisher was like you need to turn in the manuscript like, all right <laughs> and i don't know it's it, it's it's dramatic but i love a lot about this book i was happy to reread it uh the characters are indelible the the uh the the alien culture is interesting um the yes the how they get there and the fact that it's eight people in an asteroid from the society of jesus that make a first contact is kind of kind of ludicrous in in one way but it's the story she wants to tell because she wants to get a jesuit mission out to a new world having a a experience meeting people that they've never met before and that's the purpose of the book so that's what she does oh, man and there's so many so many moments in this book that work so well but the problem is that they work so well because they are gut-wrenching yes uh and mm-hmm. I, the one that sticks out to me is so after the slaughter, uh, the Janaata patrol takes uh, uh, Sandoz and uh, the other, another priest. Yeah, rubbish show. The, other right? the survivors. Yes, the, they're the two survivors, and they're going to take them back to the city. Uh, but before they do that, they are going to tour them through the the Runa villages that they're going to go kill people in because of the gardens that they have planted. And uh, it turns out. That's on the road, they eat the babies of the Runa, uh, and they <laughs> offer the food to uh, the two humans, and uh, the the one priest refuses to eat it, and he dies. And uh, uh, Sandoz does eat it, because he wants to live, uh, and late, you know, in the, the 2060 story, oh. one of the characters asks him, well, was there something that you ate that Mark didn't, that maybe that explains his death. Uh, and you don't know the significance of that line yeah. until right. you, you read the flashback and you're like, Oh man, yep, this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, Sh- Shannon and Erica know that I am, I am drawn to those, uh, those darker episodes of Babylon five on their podcast there. <laughs> and that is part of the appeal of this book to me is that it, it does, it goes so horribly wrong and you feel for these characters. And although I don't enjoy how wrong it's going, it's not like I'm looking on it with glee. I appreciate the fact that that story has made me feel so horrible for these characters that I like about this terrible situation that they're put in. And it's just, it's so, Yeah. It's so amazing that that's part of, look, Sandoz, this is all about his kind of the life of his soul and the disposition of his soul. And he thinks that he is a, a failure as a priest. And then he finally finds his calling. And then the whole thing goes so horribly wrong that in the end, you know, all of these terrible things happen to him that, um, and and that's the culmination of the story, really, is that you're left with this question of, for Sandoz, can he forgive himself? Can anybody forgive him? And the overarching question, which is, can he believe in God anymore after being um, being shown the possibility and then having all of it taken away? And I do mean all, because, uh, yeah, reading this the second time around, it, it, it hit me again, just how... just. Russell's pretty much just taking the knife and just turning it like a corkscrew because you know you've got um you know the you've got the the issue of um Sandoz essentially being sold into this uh into this uh, uh into this leader's brothel um as you know as an attraction as you know an unusual exotic uh 
um, partner for people to rape. Um, you've got the fact that he misunderstands what Sapari asks of him. He Sapari actually asks him, right. you know, I want to take you into my house. I want to make you my dependent and uses a word that Sandoz does not parse the pieces of until later. And that leads to the mutilation of their of hands, hands where yeah. they basically, yeah, try to like cut out between the bones of hands. So he's got it, the two priests have these like claws. And as you said, because um, the other priest has been refusing to eat, um, the um the runa um corpses um he dies but you know of the operation but yeah. sandoz lives through that and then he finally gets to a one point where he thinks he's finally met the singer the person who has been producing this music and it's like okay it's what brought maybe them all of this was worth all it. this way he thinks the guy's a prophet he thinks you know that he's been you know praising god and he finds out no the guy's music is basically about orgasms and pornography <laughs> and it's like, how much worse can you make and his it? Rape, and his rape victims, of which Sandoz is now one. I mean, that that is how horrible yes. this thing gets is Sandoz, they find this beautiful music from across the universe and they go to find it. And in the end, Sandoz finds the beautiful singer and he is a rapist who rapes him. And the songs turn out to be about the rapes that he does. It is as horrible. Yeah. I mean... It's horrible. Like that is, yeah. <laughs> it is so horrible. It is it's no it, good. And then it's it's compound oh because there's there are many chapters where Sandoz is talking about you know his vow of chastity and if it's worth it and it, should he do it should he not yeah he, decide, right. he makes a very conscious effort a decision no it that oath is sacred to me and I cannot even though I am stranded on this planet uh, and there's a woman who loves me and I love her and he and Sophia clearly love that each other yeah yeah. I am right. not going to do it. And then, you know, it just makes it all worse. Yeah. Yep. And the, oh. the fact that at the very end, you know, he's he's really left with a choice, which we don't get to see him make. But Sandoz has to decide, OK, so was this really all, you know, is there no God? And this was all my fault. All of these horrible things happened just because I made this mistake and set it all in motion. Or is there really a God? And it's actually God's fault that all of this awful, yeah. awful stuff happened right. to me. And this is and, what God and, wanted. And my yeah, like, so so what What two horrible things to have to choose between? It's like, you, you do really come to an understanding of, of why he is, is so messed up all the way through the book. But yeah, because halfway through, he's having the same kind of discussion with Anne, who is throwing that exact question in his face. You know, if, mm -hmm. you know, all these, you know, why is it, why do we thank God for the good things and then blame ourselves or blame the doctor or blame, you know, right. the driver? or whoever and has a rant things. about that whole thing at the and moment she, when the and one Emilio basically says yeah sando says you know what if you want to blame god go for it you know at least you're believing in god again but yeah <laughs> go for it if that's what you need do it and you know rest we get to the end of the book and he's facing that same choice only now there's nobody because he's surrounded by other jesuit priests who are trying to get to the bottom of this there is no one around there who has the guts to tell him if that's what you need to believe yeah. go for it I, I do think in terms of thinking about it 20 years later and reading it 20 years later, that one of the things mm -hmm. that this book does, I think, quite well is portray a person who is suffering from a horrendous case of post-traumatic stress disorder. That mm -hmm. Sandoz yeah. is a yes. broken, destroyed man in the, in the 2060 time frame. And over the course of the book, you see them, the people, the Jesuits, trying to find a way 
any way. They, they, some of them want to get information out of him, and some of them just want to help him like move along and progress because he's clearly utterly destroyed. He is a destroyed person. And over the course of the book, he does get better. And it is slow and painful. And he has a lot of stuff to work through. And I really, this time through, I really appreciated that part of it that I think I didn't 20 years ago about how Mm -hmm. he has to come to terms with this awful thing that happened to him and he 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 he's sick in bed he throws up he has to take he has horrible headaches all of this stuff and i thought that was really um well handled about yeah. his progression and how for the longest time he doesn't say anything about the braces they've created to help his hands that that the fact that they hurt because he feels like he deserves it he deserves until it until yeah. finally one of the other priests realized, you know, look, we can do better. Isn't that an amazing moment where he finally finally complains about how painful they are, or they realize how painful they are, and they immediately send for somebody, and like within six months, he has brand new ones that are much better and then don't cause him pain, and that are more functional. But for, for a long time, he doesn't talk about it, because he figures like, yeah, it hurts, uh, fine, I deserve it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, life is pain. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I will say on, on that side of things that, that did not work for me was we had all these characters, uh, in, you know, in the asteroid and on Rakat who are very full of life. And and I just I had trouble telling the priests apart. I would I was forgetting like, a bunch of gray men mm-hmm. in priestly outfits in Italy in 2060. Right. Yeah. Like I mean, the there's the guy who's and in the charge. bad priest and the priest from Cleveland. And, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, maybe because it's the second time around, I, I had a little easier time with that. Um, certainly with the one who was antagonistic almost the entire way through the book versus the one or two that, you know, are brought because either they are skilled in psychology or, or caring uh, to try and get him back to health or because, um, you know, they bring in one priest that uh, became a priest because he knew Emilio as a child and Emilio right. as a priest was a role model for this guy. Um, and then there's, of course, the the one who was apparently married and a stockbroker. And then, you know, he, he has a car crash, the wife dies, and he decides to become a priest. And he takes... Yeah, he was the one I could yeah. not keep track of. Like the brother Edward and, and yeah. John were just like interchangeable for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. I can see that. He doesn't get much uh, characterization, brother uh, Edward. No, you're right. They're yep. sort of sober uh, figures who are kind of battling with their own politics about this. And I, I'm not sure we needed... I mean... Uh, they have a a uh, inquisitor kind of figure who is the 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 guy who's the the kind of mean priest who doesn't believe him and that that was not that was like my least part of the whole thing was the 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 guy who's like he doesn't believe anything and it goes back to the fact that I think it's ridiculous that they just assumed terrible uh, behavior on Sandoz's mm-hmm. part and 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 had no even consideration that there were other stories to tell here um, but I agree a hundred percent that the 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 vibrancy of Rakat and that and and the whole mission there is really contrast with this kind of emptiness. Maybe you know some of that is because because Sandos is so broken. But you're right; those characters are not particularly uh, uh, notable. I like the time dilation thing. I mean that that is one of the science things that she uses to great effect. The fact that although Sandos only only you know is away for a couple of years in terms of his time, uh, forty years passes, twenty to get there and twenty back because they're 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 traveling at half the speed of light essentially for the voyage. And I I thought that was good use of actual science and uh, made the plot made the fact that he's coming back to a world he never. Somebody points out at one point very late in the book, you've never asked what happened in the time that you were gone, and. He says something right. like, you know, I've seen too much. I, I don't care anymore. <laughs> Which is just like amazing, but it's it's a good use of that science fiction trope. 
And and mm-hmm. and the one thing we didn't mention is they send him like the the UN people find him and they send him back by himself. By himself. On, yeah, yeah that, like, that definitely did not ring true. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and it's just like, can anything worse happen? Uh, he's gone through all of this thing and now he has to spend months and months and months alone uh, with his hands like infected and nearly dying on the way. Yeah. To get back to uh, an Inquisition, basically. Yeah. People are very mm-hmm. angry with him and a world that thinks he's an awful, <laughs> awful person. And I like the moment where, uh, you know, they've been sending all these scholarly papers to Earth. Oh, it's like, heartbreaking. Well, at, at, at least yeah. you've published, you know, my work is living through my published scholarly papers. And they're like, what? We didn't publish any of those. <laughs> like, That's, isn't that terrible? Like, they, le- they learned everything about these alien languages and they sent back all of these papers. That's what they spent their year doing is writing up all these yeah, things And they not learned. just the languages. I mean, they were sending back stuff on everything yeah. that they were experts in. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, they buried the, the, the Jesuits, buried the whole thing. It's just, it's, it, yeah, so heartbreaking. Oh, well, this is, this is, uh, this is a, a first contact experience that went really, really wrong. And, uh, yeah, yes. interesting story to tell. Interesting story, but memorable enough that, that I've been talking about it for the last 20 years. And I know that when I mentioned it to other people who've read it, they're like, oh, yeah, right? Including Shannon and Scott. So, yes. yeah. And we, we so enthusiastically, we hoodwinked Erica into. Oh, Erica. <laughs> Uh, my batting average for these book club episodes is pretty low. Sorry, sorry oh, about no. that. This one, uh, yeah, I, I I don't know what to tell you. I I would have warned you off if I thought you wouldn't like this one, but I I, mm-hmm. uh, I I don't think I would have done that because I I think so highly of it. So I'm sorry you didn't. Well, I mean, had like I read it. a any description of it whatsoever, you would have known. Would have known. It yeah. was it was simply that I went in cold and then just stuck with it. Yeah. And I was explaining this uh, book to Marisa because I was like, I told her, oh, you should read this. It's a really great book. But I hadn't read it in 20 years. And then I reread it. And then I thought, hmm, maybe Marisa shouldn't read it. Uh, and I was explaining the plot to her. And she's like, that sounds like a book only you would like, Scott. And I'm yeah. like, oh, many people like this book, but maybe not uh, you and Erica. Many people admire this book. I mean, I, oh, I would say, true. yeah, I would say in my case, having read through it the second time, I admire this book i love some of the characters i love a lot of it but um it is a powerful Mm. read it is for good or ill it's powerful Mm. i agree it won um many awards when it was released yes and uh i think it's very i think it's very well done although again i feel like the contrast between the whole book and the last two chapters is striking (laughs) of like oh um Okay, we're not doing that anymore. But the stuff, the the detail is is kind of amazing, and the characters and the dialogue, and it's all. Um, and and she does some pretty good uh, prognostication in a few parts in terms of what life yeah, is going to be I was like. Just about to say that, yeah, twenty sixteen in this book is not too far off. Not not so bad. In theory, a television adaptation is coming from oh, AMC. Yes. That's what wow. they say. Although that that was a that was a 2014 announcement, so it may yeah. it may be in turnaround, just like the Brad Pitt optioning of it in 2006. <laughs> um, although I think it would make much more sense as a uh, like we say about so many books that we read, much more sense as a uh, a TV limited series where you could yeah you, you could, need the length you need you need that length to tell this this yeah. kind yes. of story because it needs to build up so that the the downfall is even more horrifying yeah <laughs> well said scott yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i mean that's right the basic structure of the story so yeah. Yeah. no it's a tragedy it's no, a tragedy right. 
for sure. I mean, this is this is mm-hmm. uh, a guy spends his entire life looking for evidence of God, and God finally uh, starts to show it to him and goes, yoink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never liked you much, Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's well. That's you know, in terms of the Bible, right? There are those. There are those stories. Uh, not to take it back to Job, but you know, stories of people who it's like, <laughs> it's well, true. part of the test is maybe it's terrible for you, and you still have to believe in me, and that's just how it that's is. That's the definition of faith, right? Yep. You keep believing even though it is difficult. And that's the other amazing thing about this book for me is that you know, there, whatever your opinions of religion are, like Jesuits in history actually did this kind of thing. They did. They yes. went mm-hmm. on a boat and they crossed an ocean. They didn't know where they were going just to see what was out there and to hopefully, you know, turn some people into followers of Christ. Uh, but mostly, at least for the Jesuits, expanding knowledge was also a big part of it. Uh, and that's, you know, crazy to me. And a lot of them, yeah, a lot of them would 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 end up dying horribly and not returning. Yes, they would <laughs> die or or having... Much like in this book, horrible things happen to them, and yet they they go they recuperate and then they go back to the same places where these horrible things have happened to them. Yeah, and guess what? Horrible things happen to them again. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's uh yeah it's it's a thought provoking book. It's one that I that I really appreciate. I I'm uh, I think you could also something we didn't even talk on too much is if you believe this as these as these jesuits do that um they're knowing god by by uh visiting god's other children um that's another horror of this book right the fact that this is a on this world this small group of creatures is preying upon this larger group of creatures in in a way that is fundamentally you would say a uh, an evil setup mm-hmm. an evil uh, mm-hmm. organization here and so that that uh, that kind of calls into question, like, it's not just why do bad things happen to the humans on this world, but it's like, why is this world awful, too, in a different way than ours? <laughs> so uh, there's so much here. If you like to be de- if you want to be sad and depressed and see horrible things happen anyway, <laughs> check it out. The Sparrow. But told in a beautiful way. And it is. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think everybody now who has listened to this has a very good idea if they should read it or not. I think that's yes. what I would say. <laughs> Erica, you should listen to this podcast before you read this book. <laughs> Quick, find your TARDIS. If only. <laughs> we'll send it back in time. Uh, before we go, mm-hmm. I'm going to very quickly ask if there's anything else that you've read recently that you would like to mention to our listeners, because that's a fun thing that we do. Scott, anything that you uh, have read recently that's been very interesting to you? Uh, yes, I have... Uh been spending some time reading some historical fiction, which I will skip over, but there are two uh, sci-fi books that I have read as of late that I enjoyed. Uh, One is called Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. Uh, He wrote um, some TV series that I never watched, Wayward Pines, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, Or he wrote the books that it's based on whatever. Uh, This book, Dark Matter, is about this physicist who basically figures out a way of traveling through the multiverse and unintended consequences happen. Uh, it's interesting. I read it in two days. It's uh, an easy read. And it is once you figure out, oh, it's a multiverse thing, you think you know how it's going to end, but it doesn't end the way you think it does, which is always uh, good. Hmm. And another kind of more sci-fi uh, in space 
book that I read was uh, Dark Run by Mike Brooks, uh, which is the first in a series, which I didn't know when I started reading it, <laughs> which is always annoying, but uh, um, but it's fun. Another fun, quick sci-fi read that uh, I enjoyed. And before you start reading it, you should realize it's the first in a series. Right. Some <laughs> darkness there from you, Scott. Some dark, dark. Are books. you reading dark. like alphabetically by title? <laughs> I, I am just going through <laughs> all the dark books now. Erica, all, something yep, I'm on dark. Anything you're uh, reading that you want to mention? Uh, well, I did recently read a book called Damaged Goods, which was Russell T. Davis's uh, first foray into the world of Doctor Who, ah. um, which I wasn't a huge fan of it. If you're interested in that one, Verity did an episode on that. Uh, I'll say I liked it better than The Sparrow. Um, oh, okay. Not a high bar. <laughs> uh, also, um, f- more for fun and actual recommendation, I finally got around to reading the fourth and final book of the Magic X Libris series uh, by Jim C. Hines. It's called Revisionary. And it was I, I put it off because I did not want that series to be done. And I knew when I finished this last book, which was the last book, that I wasn't going to have any more. But I finally got around to doing it. And I, I think that he, he wrapped it up nicely. Um, somewhere in one of the books before this, uh, the world comes to the realization that there is actually magic out there. And I think that he does a, a nice job of thinking through the possible ramifications of what would happen if if that were the case. And you had magic on one side and technology on another side. And then, you know, the horribleness of people and politicians and all of that kind of stuff. And, and the books overall are kind of light and fun, but he sort of doesn't pull punches with, with what would happen. If, if like it, it goes to some dark places as well, but still, uh, still manages to be escapy enough for me to to quite like it. And and last, um, I have been proofreading the next issue of Uncanny Magazine issue twelve, and there was one short story in there called "Not a Miracle but a Marvel" by Tim Pratt, which I just loved. It was a I don't want to say it was a twist on like a, a classic sort of fairy tale fable sort of a thing. Um, but it was uh, maybe a modern slant on it. And I'm a sucker for those sorts of things. So that'll yeah. that'll be out soon-ish. I'm not sure, sure exactly when in relation to when this podcast drops. Shannon, anything you would like to uh, to mention? Well, um, I'm, this is more in support of a foot than uh, the uh. incomparable. But I have been plowing through uh, Carrie Greenwood's uh, Friny Fisher mysteries this summer. Um, the basically take your detective. She's a woman. She's a flapper in Australia in the twenties. Um, and they have been a delight. Um, I'm looking forward to when we get around to, um, talking about, uh, the, that on a foot, both her, the novels. And I've also started watching the, um, the Australian TV show based on them. Uh, but that's been the majority of my reading this summer. I am about to start, um, N.K. Jemison. Uh, uh, back with the fifth season because mm-hmm. everyone's talking about the obelisk gate and I want to read that too. So those are mm-hmm. on my list. All right. That's uh, another book about uh, flappers from Australia solving crimes. Ah, <laughs> uh, whatever. There's so many of those. Anyway, um, uh, let's see. What have I read lately? I read a couple of really fun nonfiction books that I want to mention. One is by Tom Standage, who's a writer uh, or an editor at The Economist, Formerly Glenn's editor at The Economist, actually. Um, some Glenning there. Uh, a History uh-huh. of the World in Six Glasses, which is a great book about... It's a gloss on his, the growth of human civilization through six different drinks. And it's like hmm. beer and wine and uh, spirits and Coca-Cola and uh, coffee and tea. <laughs> 
and it's uh it's great and i also enjoyed mark forsyth's book uh which was recommended to me by dan moore in the etymologicon which is uh just a silly series of they're kind of like newspaper columns about ridiculous words in the english language and where they came from i loved it and i really enjoyed stiletto the sequel to the rook by daniel o'malley ah. it's not as good as the rook yes but it's good it's a lot of fun. Sequel problems. It's it's, it's problem. I, I missed I I missed the world of the Rook. I wish there was a new Rook book every year and not every five years or whatever. But it was really a lot of fun, and I'm glad that it's out now because it was a lot of fun. I agree. And uh, let's see <laughs> the uh, yeah. And I'm looking forward to reading the Obelisk Gate, but I haven't read it yet, so I can't say. And I'm rereading so the like- the Dark Tower for a future incomparable podcast. So I read the the Gunslinger and the Drawing of the Three in the last couple of weeks to refresh my memory on on those because I read those many many years ago. Yeah, I'll have to catch up on those. We have uh, yeah, we have reached the end. Uh, thank you to my guests for being here and and uh, traveling with me in a hollowed out asteroid. To visit, I, I hope the aliens are nice. Uh, Erica Ensign, thank you for get, doing the reading and not bailing out. <laughs> I I feel like I have have persevered. Yes, and that's a thing that I did. The Jesuits yeah. would approve. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Shannon Sutter, thank you. Always a pleasure. And Scott McNulty, thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. And uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening to this edition of The Incomparable. Hope hope we didn't test your faith a little too much. (laughs) Uh, uh, And we will uh, see you next week.